views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This is the third time this week I've had to fix Mrs. Garrett's sink. Perhaps she enjoys your company. It might be tolerable if her son didn't insist on calling me Mo. Why does he do that? There is a comic actor known as a stooge with that name. The boy believes we have similar hair. There is a resemblance. This is intolerable. I'm a warp field engineer. Then perhaps you can help me construct a subspace transceiver. I told you, it's impossible. If we remain here, we'll die. This world's on the brink of self-annihilation. I don't believe that. Because your fascination with this species is blinding you. You sit for hours each day in front of this idiotic device. I'm doing research. Perhaps if you spent more time observing human behavior, you might not have such a pessimistic view of them. Open your eyes. They revel in violence. They devote what little technology they have to devising ways of killing each other. So did we centuries ago. They just haven't realized their potential yet. What potential? They have great empathy and compassion. Look how we've been made to feel welcome. Only because they believe we're human. If they discovered the truth, do you think they'd be so compassionate? Where are you going? To the ship. Why? This antenna is inadequate. I believe I can use a waveform discriminator to enhance it. It'll be safer to go after dark. You can't risk being followed. I need to go now. I Love Lucy is on tonight. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 21st, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be all right 519-661-3600 always a number you can call to reach us on the show today and we're I guess we should be talking about the weather today, shouldn't we, Robert? Instead, we're going to justify our wasted childhood. <laughs> yes, our wasted childhood. Uh, did you watch I Love Lucy when you were a kid? Oh, I love that show, yes. Yeah, well, you know, that's not what the show is about today, unfortunately. But it may have a connection to what our show is about today. And that is a pioneers of television, sci-fi, and fantasy. And you might be wondering, well, what the heck has I Love Lucy got to do with that? A lot, actually. Um, yeah, and I'm thinking uh, it's possible that perhaps without I Love Lucy having a existed maybe those shows that we know so well either may not have existed or not have existed in the form that we know them because of course the people behind any art and artistic endeavor um, are the people that make the ideas today we'll be looking at some of the names that uh, 
strangely enough, crossed the whole science fiction field of fantasy and sci-fi in television. And we're talking about Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball, Rod Serling mostly, Irwin Allen, and Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek, of course, who we're dealing with the least, actually, today, because we've talked about Star Trek in detail on past shows. Had a whole show about Star Trek. Did a whole show on it, but not on Gene Roddenberry or the creators behind it. No. And so... And underlying this is a philosophical issue, uh, something that Ayn Rand pointed out and we'll be getting to shortly, and it's a bit of a move from naturalism to romantic heart, and we'll define some of those terms. Maybe also a flight from reality to science fiction and fantasy. Um, when we see why artists resort to sci-fi and fantasy to make their points, it might help explain many of the <laughs> legends, myths, uh, religions, fairy tales, rhymes, and even limericks that, that have come up in history as a way of people, you know, to deal with public issues that you couldn't otherwise just come out and talk about bluntly. So I guess we could say we are looking at the fifth dimension of philosophy today. <laughs> Grown. Aesthetics. Hmm? Grown. Grown. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, and, 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 I, and it's an area of philosophy that I guess is more subjective in many cases. There's no right and wrong in a lot of these cases. But um, the interesting thing is, well, let's start off with, I want to start off with Rod Serling because he actually was mentioned in the news just this past week and that's what caught my eye and remi reminded me of this. We were going to do this a long time ago, do you remember? We mm -hmm. were talking about doing a show on this subject for a while. And why not do it on the day when it's almost 100 Fahrenheit degrees outside? Uh, possibly the hottest day of the year here in decades now, isn't it? I'm liking it. Yeah, you're liking it? Mm -hmm. Oh, my, you are crazy. I don't know about you. <laughs> I can't. I couldn't live like this all the time, I'll tell you. But I was watching, uh, I was reading the paper, actually. This was out of the, the Toronto Star, a reprint from, um, what was that, out of the Washington Post, was it? or uh, New York Times. New York Times, sorry, yeah. Um, Maureen Dowd, and she had a title called The Twitter Zone, and I'm going, well, that sounds a little bit Rod Serling-ish, and I thought it was going to be a real trite little piece, and uh, maybe in a way it was, but she made some interesting comments, and she was saying that um, that every July 4th weekend she gets sucked into uh, this little, what she calls, quote, the spooky little dimension of the Twilight Zone, as as the annual sci-fi marathon proves, Rod Serling's hypnotic show is as relevant as ever. And she starts speculating on what would have happened if Anthony Weiner had watched The Twilight Zone. He might have been more aware of how swiftly and chillingly our technology can turn on us. Uh, prosecutors and reporters, dumbfounded by dramatic reversals in the cases of tabloid villains, might do well to keep in mind Serling's postmodern mantra, nothing is what it seems. And so she talks about um, basically, you know, that many of the characters that we see in today might have been saved and others destroyed by Twitter, Facebook, and Google. And, he, and she speculates that had Rod Serling known about these me medium, he would have invented some pretty interesting uh, stories about them. And apparently she's talking to Serling's friend, whose name is Doug Brody. And he, and he says to her, he says, you know, when you look at Twilight Zone episodes, everything is ambivalent. And uh, Doug Brody was one of the two people who, along with his uh, wife Carol, wrote the 50th anniversary tribute to Rod Serling, which was published in 2009. And they say that Rod had an open mind to the good, the bad, and the in-between of technology. He was a guarded optimist until the Kennedy assassination. After that, his work reflected his sense of hopelessness. An interesting comment in light of what other people say about him, where they see, say he's creative and, and gave a sense of hope. And um, 
But there's an interesting story about Rod Serling. I told you about this last week. And um, they write here, it says in this article, that Serling's father was a middle-class grocer, lost his business in the Depression, so Rod had an early lesson in reversals. Uh, Serling also had a devastating experience while serving in World War II. Imagine this happening to you. During a lull at the Battle of Leyte Gulf in, in the Pacific, he was standing with his arm around a good friend, and they were having their picture taken. At that very moment, an Air Force plane dropped a box of extra ammunition that landed on Serling's friend and flattened him so fatally that he couldn't even be seen under the box. You right. know, there's a different account of that in uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, Apparently, he's, uh, the friend was mm-hmm. um, a Jewish comedian, and he was on stage performing, and Rod Serling just happened to be there. And, um, on the stage with him? or, or No, not oh. on the stage with him. And this box of ammunition falls from the sky and decapitates him in front of Serling. Oh, my. So not, completely different renditions of this event. But it, both of them are gruesome to even contemplate. It's funny. We've run into a couple of contradictions like that from different accounts of the same events, mm-hmm. which uh, maybe tells you how different people see different scenes. But that's a pretty big difference. Yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, Brody says many zone episodes are about that split second of fate where someone arbitrarily gets spared or absurdly does not. And, uh, you know, Serling himself lived a reversal going from a trailer park after the war, many rejection slips, you know. He went to Hollywood, eventually had the big pool, the big house, gave all that up again and went back to uh, living on Cayuga Lake in upstate New York where he lived a much more uh, laid-back lifestyle in a cottage. And... Uh, Apparently, they talk, she talks about one Twilight Zone episode where an inept screenwriter conjures up Shakespeare to help him out. The bard produces a dazzling screenplay, that, but then storms out when the sponsor demands a lot of revisions. <laughs> did Autobi- autobiography, yeah. Autobiographical of Serling, I think. I think so, yes. Then they asked, did Serling, who had a searing sense of social and racial justice, believe in God? Quote, not Charlton Heston sitting on a cloud with the Ten Commandments, but absolutely as a force in the universe he did, Brody said. Nearly 35 years ago, George Lucas told me that the whole concept of the force comes from Rod Serling. So when the creator of one show tells you that, I guess there must be some truth to it. And of course, it's impossible not to watch uh, a stretch of the endlessly inventive Serling and not notice how many of his plots have been ripped off for movies and how ahead of his time he was. In a popular new Samsung ad, a young woman jumps up from the lunch table and begins screaming because the tarantula screensaver of her colleague's 4G phone is so lifelike. Another guy at the table takes off his shoe and smashes it. <laughs> There's a Twilight Zone episode where a Western gunfighter time travels forward and goes into a bar where he sees a TV with a cowboy coming towards him. Thinking it's real, he pulls out his pistol and shoots the screen. Yeah. Looking at this summer's lame crop of movies and previews, you can appreciate Serling's upbraiding of the entertainment industry for, quote, our mediocrity, our imitativeness, our commercialism, and all too frequently, our deadening and deadly lack of creativity and courage, end quote. The Twilight Zone was never gangbusters in the ratings, and Serling, who smoked on screen, died from 50 from the rav- died at 50 from the ravages of six packs a day. Well, I disagree right there. With which? Not his death, but the fact that he had a, a lackluster rating. Uh, he describes his rating, I don't know what the terms are, 31 or something, which, by the way, is 25 million people, he says. That, 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 yeah, again, I don't understand that, and we hear it again in some of the interviews that we're going to... Maybe compared to Gunsmoke, that was a lackluster rating, but as he says, that that's more people who actually witnessed Shakespeare in 100 years of Shakespeare. That's true. Very true. 
And, uh, and she, she, she concludes, she says, sadly, he gave himself a trick ending. He died never realizing how influential he really would be. Everything today is Rod Serling, says Brody. Everything. Well, I don't know about everything, yeah. but uh, certainly his contributions were amazing. Well, there's a number of things I didn't particularly like about Sterling's stories. Uh, one of the ones that he said was his best story was called Time Enough at Last. You probably remember it starred Burgess Meredith as a bank oh, teller yes. who couldn't yes. have enough time to read his books. He was always being hounded by his boss or his wife. And uh, his wife actually tore up his books because he was always reading and he couldn't find the time to read. So one day he was having his lunch in the bank vault and Armageddon happens outside a nuclear holocaust. And he comes out, he's the only survivor, him in a library full of books. And what happens? Just like uh, the the lady said about uh, Rod Serling's turn of fate, fatalism, Mm -hmm. he bends over to pick up a book, time enough at last to read everything he wanted to read, and he breaks his glasses... With which he cannot see anything. Yeah, and, he, right. and he's blind as a bat otherwise. Right. Fatalism. I, I didn't like that kind of thing. You know, I, 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 that just sort of rubbed me the wrong way. I don't like fatalistic stories. Well, it's interesting because... Although I'm, it was well-crafted. Yeah. Ayn Rand felt differently about Serling. She wrote an interesting thing about him. She said she found him to be one of sort of the last vestiges of, or maybe new vestiges of, of romanticism coming back into into plays and theater and television, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But she wrote that uh, some remnants of romanticism may still be found in the popular media, but in such a mangled, disfigured form that they achieve the opposite of romanticism's original purpose, which might be what you're getting at here, Hmm. Robert. The best symbolic projection of these remnants' meaning was given in a brief TV story of The Twilight Zone some years ago, she writes. In some indeterminate world of another dimension, the shadowy, white-clad, authoritarian figures of doctors and social scientists are deeply concerned with the problem of a young girl who looks so different from everyone else that she is shunned as a freak, a disfigured outcast unable to lead a normal life. All plastic surgeries have failed, and now the doctors are grimly preparing to give her a last chance, but the operation fails. The doctors declare with contemptuous compassion that they will have to find a young man as deformed as this girl who might be able to accept her. Then for the first time, we see the girl's face, a face of perfect, radiant beauty. The camera moves to the faces of the doctors. It is an unspeakably horrifying row, not of human faces, but of mangled, distorted, disfigured pig heads, unrecognizable only by their snouts. Fade out. It was called Eye of the Beholder. I remember that episode well. And it actually starred, um, I forget her name, Ellie Mae from the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, is that right? What's her name? Um, Not Irene Donna something. Donna. Yeah. It'll come to me. But uh, she writes, Rod Serling, one of the most talented writers of television, started as a naturalist, dramatizing controversial journalistic issues of the moment, never taking sides, conspicuously avoiding value judgments, writing about ordinary people, except that these people spoke the most beautifully, eloquently romanticized dialogue, a purposeful, intellectual, sharply focused dialogue by essentials, of a kind that people do not speak in real life, but should. Rod Serling turned to romanticism, but placed his stories in another dimension, in the twilight zone. And with that, we'll, take our, we'll head into our first break. And what you'll be hearing here is the, the first voice you're going to hear is that of uh, Desi Arnaz, who is introducing playwright Rod Serling to his audience of Playhouse, which was produced by Desi Lou for the first time. 
And it's immediately followed by a 1970 interview with Rod Serling. I guess it was called The Lost Interview. Who was that with? You were, I, I didn't get that information. Uh, James Gunn. And who was who was uh, who himself is a science fiction? I author. got the impression that he was a science fiction. Yeah, writer. Fr- from the way Rod was talking to him. And then on the other side of the bumper, some words of wisdom from Serling on the difficulty of writing. We'll be back right after this. Westinghouse, first with the future, presents the Westinghouse Desi Lou. Playhouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're going to see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. Our story begins in a doctor's office. A patient is sitting there. He walked into this office nine minutes ago. Science fiction uh, on television might be considered a branch of uh, science fiction in the film. They're both uh, dealing with the uh, medium of ideas in uh, this area in the visual sense. Uh, and certainly the, the name of uh, Rod Serling has been very closely associated with uh, with science fiction on television. What was your first uh, encounter with... Uh, the first the serious encounter in, t- in uh, television science fiction form, Jim, would have been... Uh, I'm having a lot of trouble with that cigarette, aren't I? <laughs> I think God is telling me, don't smoke. Uh, a fairly obscure show that people don't remember called The Desi Lou Playhouse. This was back in about, oh, I'd guess 1956. Uh, and I did a time travel piece with Bill Bendix uh, the name of which, strangely enough, eludes me at this given moment, though I should remember it. It was the first shot out of the... Oh, the time element, it was called. And got tremendous reaction. And because of its reaction, the network, the CBS network, who I had approached over the past three years to try to get something in a science fiction genre on, took another second look at it. And as a result, I got Twilight Zone on. But that time travel thing was the first essentially serious thing I had done. What led you to, to this field? For... Of course, see, I love science fiction, but I'm an aficionado, not a contributor. And I say this, you know, with no stupid, dumb-dumb humility at all. I'm a, purely a Johnny-come-lately. I am perhaps the least scientifically knowledgeable man in the whole writing group. And I bow with great deference and respect to the real masters, uh, you know, Asimov and, and Bob Hanline and Sturgeon and all the rest of them. And these, of course, and yourself included, because you write pure science fiction. I can adapt science fiction, I think, quite adequately, but I can't create it on an original level. What's the difference when you come to adapt something? Well, of course... What do you look for? I look for that which is shootable and that which is tellable in storyline in at least a reasonably simple form, because television, however ambitious it may be and however vast is the the realm of imagination that you can dabble in is still a strangely limited and enclosed and, and closeted kind of medium. We can do marvelous interiors of spaceships, but we we fall by the wayside in the area of opticals when it comes to, you know, extraterrestrial space travel and that sort of thing. We, for example, could never begin to do 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kubrick would put us out of business in three days of shooting. Uh, so as a result, we're sort of the poor relation of, uh, of science fiction in the mass media. And you'll note that most of the science fiction that is tackled on television 
his bedroom and living room science fiction. Small scale. Small lab and small scale. So you look for a... I look uh, for tellable stories that are physically tellable, and from a plot point of view, that which is uh, at least pliable, manipulable. Manipulable. You know what I mean, yes, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yes, I... Uh, he writes I, well, it just <laughs> he doesn't talk very good, you know. <laughs> Where do they come from, do I say? Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air. Like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. Then the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. <laughs> Let it bleed. <laughs> that is so telling. That it, it's so true too. I run into this all the time. I ran into it when I first started writing myself. Yep. I remember the first time I put words down on a piece of paper. I thought an idiot had written them, because until you see your ideas objectively and look back on them, right, mm -hmm. you realize that you're you're dealing with a disjointed number of thoughts, and it takes work to get them into some order that you can deal with. You know, uh, actually, I'm, I'm reminded of... A lot of, of people a, don't realize that, you know. That it's hard work, it's yeah. It's really hard work. I'm reminded of a quote I heard from Barbara Brandon. Actually, oh, yeah. was, at, wasn't this at the ISO right here. conference yeah, at, here at, mm -hmm. uh, in London, where somebody asked her, um, how do you go about writing? And she said, you just have to do it, and you have to have the mindset that whatever you're writing is golden. Because everybody is so self-critical that once they see the words in the paper, they probably just crumple it up and throw it away. I've done that. Say, My God, this is garbage. And yet when I show it to you or somebody else, I go, oh, that's great. Well, I, re I, I, re I learned a rule from, uh, from you know, when we went to a lot of those workshops way back when, uh, which, how'd it go? Be a pencil, not an not eraser. eraser. And, and y y you do those in two different stages. Apparently, Ayn Rand was, was always an eraser and a pencil at the same time, which is why some people criticized her for taking 14 years to write Atlas Shrugged, right? <laughs> and so, Mind you, if you saw the, saw the size of Atlas Shrugged, Rugging. Well, no way. it's 14, it years. 14 years to read it, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> but uh, still, that was if you're criticizing your writing as you're writing the first draft, you're never going to get it done. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I put down anything. Even if you have a lot of emotionalism in you and you've got all these F words coming out, get them out. We'll you know, them out later. Actually, here at the university, I went and I sat in on a, um, a writer's workshop by the local writer-in-residence here at UWR. I'm afraid I forget her name at the moment, but that was many years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was the first class, was um, when you want to write something, just start writing and write it all down. It's going to be garbage. It'll be total garbage. Then you have to start the editing process, the culling process, the thought process. And the amazing thing is when you do that, you discover, my goodness, it's easier than I thought, Yeah. right? 
because you don't have to th- come up with the idea. Uh, I, I, you know, you know my habit. I have all these little scrap pieces of paper around all the time. When I come mm-hmm. up with an idea, I write it down right away. Not even an idea, just a memo. If I see a clip on TV that I think I might be able to use for this show, I write it down because it won't come back to my memory when I'm when I'm calling for it, right? So that's one of the things uh, that that I've learned about writing. Interesting question about where ideas come from. If ideas come from the senses, then how do we imagine things that we've never sensed? That's creativity, isn't it? Yes. It goes beyond the senses. So to say that ideas come only from the senses, that's the raw material, but do the, does the creativity come from that? I don't know about that. How do we project into the future if we haven't seen the future? And, you know, it's possible that projecting or attempting to predict various futures, I'm, I'm thinking, is almost a major activity that human beings involve themselves with in their entire lives. It actually, know? it's a described a, a description of what makes us human is the ability to to plan. To plan. Other animals cannot do that exactly. in the same sense that we can do that. Will I be rich? Will I be poor? Investment strategies for the future, right? Who's going to win that next horse race, football game, the big fight? You know, if I could bet on a sure thing, then the future would really be working for me. In fact, that's part of. Uh, what happens in Rod Serling's time element where the protagonist finds himself thrown back in time 17 years just mm-hmm. prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and at one point he starts placing bets on on games and horses that he knows won in history to see if he can make some money. But of course projecting a future ideal is a different type of gamble altogether and that is called, according to Ayn Rand, uh, basically romanticism. The idea of projecting an ideal future. And she writes that romanticism is a category of art based on the recognition of the principle that man possesses the faculty of volition. We can choose. Things don't just happen to us. Romanticism recognizes the existence of man's volition. Naturalism denies it. If man possesses volition, then the crucial aspect of his life is his choice of values. And if he chooses values, he has to act or to, to gain and or keep them. If so, then he has to set his goals and engage in purposeful action to achieve them. The literary form expressing the essence of such action is known as the plot. You ever seen some of those plotless shows that are just boring as all sin? I have about five minutes of them before I turn them off. Yeah, it's They're just, useless. It's, it's, it's hard to take, isn't it? It is. And, uh, and yet they are the shows that win Academy Awards. It, it's scary. Yeah. No, mind you, for other categories maybe, like scenery or costumes, you can't argue with something that basic but no. still if, if when it comes down to the story that's where I find a lot of the modern movies are really not up to snuff they really aren't but she writes if man does not possess volition then the choice of values is impossible to him he's impotent to achieve his goals or engage in purposeful action and the literary form expressing the essence of this view is what we've just been talking about plotlessness with very rare and partial exceptions, romanticism is non-existent in today's literature, literature, she writes. The destruction of romanticism and aesthetics was made possible by philosophical default. That which is not known explicitly is not in man's con- conscious control. And she says here, the definition of romanticism given here is mine. It is not generally known or accept, a generally known or accepted one. Romanticism is a product of the 19th century, a result of two great influences. Aristotelianism, that liberated man by validating the power of his mind, and capitalism, that gave man's mind the freedom to translate ideas into practice. Naturalism rose to prominence and and assumed the mantle of reason and reality, proclaiming the artist's duty to portray things, quote, as they are. 
And she, she warns, too, that philosophers have contributed to a confusion surrounding the term romanticism. They attached a name romantic to certain philosophers who were avowed mystics, who advocated supremacy of emotions, instincts, or will over reason. This movement in philosophy had no significant relation to romanticism in aesthetics, and the two movements should not be confused. So they're two different things. But interestingly, she says that this was only her definition. I don't know about that. When I looked it up in, in Funk and Wagnalls, the definition there seemed to agree very much with her own definition. Uh, romantic, it said, and, and this is aside from the definitions of love and amorous type feelings, okay? Yes. Uh, number four was visionary, impractical. Five, not based on fact. Imaginary, fictitious. Six, of or pertaining to romanticism in art, literature, and music. And their definition of romanticism was a movement in art, music, and literature originating in Europe in the late 18th century, characterized by a revolt against, against, not for, the neoclassical adherence to rules, forms, and traditions, an exalting of the feelings and a marked preference for individualism, as distinguished from classicalism. And they define naturalism as a close adherence to nature or human life and literature, painting, etc. The doctrine that all phenomena are derived from natural causes and can be explained by scientific laws, which is a lot to do with determinism, isn't it? We talk a lot about that. Or action and thought derived exclusively from natural desires and instincts. Now, uh, just before we go to break, she writes that um, although naturalism is a product of the, na of the 19th century, its spiritual father in modern history was Shakespeare. The premise that man does not possess volition, that his destiny is determined by an innate tragic flaw is fundamental in Shakespeare's work. But granted this false premise, his approach is metaphysical, not journalistic. His characters are grand-scale abstractions of the character traits with the with, uh, that a determinist would regard as inherent in human nature, ambition, power <coughs> lust, jealousy, greed, etc. But the majority of naturalists rejected metaphysics as they rejected values and adopted the method of journalism, the mere recording of observed concretes. The contradictions inherent in determinism were obvious in this movement from the start. One does not read fiction except on the implicit premise of volition. The value of a romanticist story lies in what might happen. The value of a naturalist story lies in that it did happen. Now we're going to take our second break now and we'll hear from Rod Serling again. This is with Mike Wallace ta actually talking about the Twilight Zone. And uh, this must have been before the show even started because they were still talking about it in a future tense. We'll be back after this. You've got a new series coming up called The Twilight Zone. You are writing as well as acting ex executive producer on this one. Who controls the final product? You are the sponsor. We have what I think, at least uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. Where in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama, I'm the judge. Because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it. I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years. And the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. When it comes to the story content, he leaves it up to me. Has nothing been changed in the... We changed in 18 scripts, Mike. We have had one line changed. Is pre-censorship, though, involved? Are you simply writing easy? In this particular area, no, because we're dealing with a half-hour show, which cannot probe like a 90, which doesn't use scripts as vehicles of social criticism. These are strictly for entertainment. These are pot boilers. Oh, no. Uh -uh. I wouldn't and call them pot boilers at all. Well, these are very adult... Uh, I think high quality half-hour 
extremely polished films. But because they deal in the areas of fantasy and imagination and science fiction and all, all of those things, uh, there's no opportunity to cop a plea or, or chop an axe or anything. Well, you're not going to be able to cop a plea or chop an axe because you're going to be obviously working so hard on the Twilight Zone that in essence, for the time being and for the foreseeable future, you've given up on writing anything important for television, right? Yeah. For the, well, uh, again, this is a semantic thing, important for television. I don't know. If by important you mean I'm not going to try to delve into current social problems dramatically, you're quite right. I'm not. You told Kay Gardella of the New York Daily News this. You said, professionally, I don't think Twilight Zone will hurt me, but I must admit I don't think it'll help me either. I'm stepping out of the line of fire. You've had it as far as trying to beat your brains out. Would you just read me the first two lines, Mike? Professionally, I don't think Twilight Zone will hurt me, but I must admit I don't think it'll help me. I either. never said that. I'm convinced it'll help me. I have great pride in this show. In 11 or 12 years of writing, Mike, I can lay claim to at least this. I have never written beneath myself. I've never written anything that I didn't want my name attached to. Mm -hmm. I have probed deeper in some scripts, and I've been more successful in some than others. But all of them that have been on... You know, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take my lick. I, I, they're mine, and that's the way I wanted them. Uh, somebody asked me the other day if this means that uh, uh, I'm going to be a, a, uh, a meek conformist. And I, my answer is no, I'm just acting the role of a tired nonconformist. <laughs> and I don't want to fight anymore. Uh, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to have to battle sponsors and agencies. I don't want to have to push for something that I want and have to settle for second best. I don't want to have to compromise all the time, which in essence is what the television writer does if he wants to put on controversial themes. Well, then why do you stay in television? I stay in television because I think it's very possible to perform a, a function of providing adult, meaningful, exciting, challenging drama without dealing in controversy necessarily. This, of course, Mike, is not the best of all possible worlds. I am not suggesting that th this is at the absolute millennium. I think it's criminal that we're not permitted to make dramatic note uh, of, of social evils as they exist, of controversial themes as yeah. they are, are, are inherent in our society. I, I think it's ridiculous that drama, which by its very nature should make a comment on those things that affect our daily lives, is in the, is in the position, at least in terms of television drama, of not being able to take, these, to take this stand. of outer space to the depths of the sea from the top of a burning skyscraper to an ocean liner turned upside down Irwin Allen's imagination took us on many wild adventures and made science fiction fans out of generations of audiences some knew him as the creator of hit shows like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea Lost in Space The Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants and others knew him as the master of disaster, the producer of blockbuster movies like The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. But for those who knew him best, he was a creative visionary, a pioneer who brought a youthful enthusiasm to everything he touched. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was one of the biggest box office hits of 1961. And more than ever, Irwin Allen was considered one of 20th Century Fox's most valuable assets. In 1964, Irwin Allen took the big plunge into television with a weekly version of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. This is the Sea View, the most extraordinary submarine in all the seven seas. 
Welcome aboard the Seaview, gentlemen. I'm Irwin Allen, the producer and sometimes writer-director of this new series. Using sets, costumes, and stock footage from his feature film, he dazzled audiences with one of the most spectacular pilots ever produced. For TV's Admiral Nelson, Irwin cast veteran actor Richard Basehart. I was too close for comfort. Co-starring as Captain Lee Crane was one of the survivors of The Lost World, David Hedison. Dive! All dive! 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 All dive! Full speed ahead! Irwin called, and he wanted me to do a film called Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And after my experience on The Lost World, I just couldn't, I couldn't face it, because it was basically the same thing. So I, I turned it down. And then um, a couple of years after that, he called me for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the series. I turned that down. And the guy wouldn't let go. So finally, after I heard that Richard Basehart was playing the Admiral, I was terribly impressed that he got Richard. And I thought, well, God, if Richard Basehart can do this, I certainly can. No, sir, the orders are quite clear. To complete the mission, I'm to regard Seaview and her entire crew as expendable. If you have a choice, though, Captain, I assume you'll bring us all back alive. <laughs> Just right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600. You can also send us an email at feedback at justrightmedia.org. We always love to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook from our website at justrightmedia.org and Give us a like there. We always like that. And those clips, a couple of things to say about those, Bob. First of all, the Rod Serling clip where he's talking to Mike Wallace. Mm -hmm. You notice that he doesn't really talk about science fiction or fantasy per se. He always emphasizes that, that the craft he's working in or the, um, the genre he's working in is drama. And he was originally discovered for a couple of his dramas. One was called Patterns and the other one's uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight where he won uh, some substantial awards for those, an Emmy included. And that's what I think of Serling as primarily, not necessarily science fiction, but as a dramatist. And I think that that's probably what he would like to be known for, is his drama. And um, It's interesting he talked about um, the limitations of television. Yes. And, uh, you know, they couldn't compete with someone like Kubrick. I don't think that's the case today anymore. In fact, a lot of television today looks better than some of the movie stuff. Oh, that's true. And it's, it's, the fact that movies are coming out there with 3D and yeah, they have to compete in a whole around different way. 4D now, just try, try to compete with television. That's I think right. it's the exact opposite. But not the talent, I think. He was identifying Kubrick as a superior talent, I think, when it came to things of, uh, like, he, like he described, optics. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the budget wasn't there for television. I think that's probably another concern. And speaking of budgets, that was Irwin Allen. That last clip we were talking about, Irwin Allen, and if people don't know them, he's responsible for the creation and uh, production of such shows as Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, which was a particularly good one. I, that was one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Land of the Giants. Only lasted a year. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the best one only lasted one season. Yeah. And it's interesting, you, you had a comment that somebody made about him. Was it Billy Mooney? Oh, yes, uh, right. Yeah, now, I, I do not particularly like in general, Irwin Allen's stuff. And I, you and I were talking on the phone about some of the th things we're going to talk about today. And I'm going, why did you pick Irwin Allen? Because if you want to talk about the romanticism and uh, versus naturalism or uh, the giants of the people who helped science fiction, fantasy, 
uh, romanticism come to life on the television screen. I can see Gene Roddenberry, I can see Rod Serling, uh, but Irwin Allen, I think he's done a disservice to science fiction and... Um, well, I think you're being a little harsh on uh, that. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, you know, as a kid, I loved oh, sure. Land of the Giants. I used to watch it every day before going to Mass on Sundays. That's when that came on. <laughs> and everybody had to be late for church because I didn't want to miss the ending of Land of the Giants. Well, we'll be hearing a little that. more about that show a little later on. Yeah, but the quote from Billy Mummy is um, out of the Wikipedia page of Irwin Allen, and it says, uh, uh, Lost in Space's Billy Mummy said of Allen that while he was very good at writing television pl- pilots that sold, which is very true, by the way. Mm-hmm. His unwillingness to spend money money hurt his show's quality once on the air. A monster costume that appeared on one of his shows, for example, would appear on another a few weeks later with a different coat of paint. And there's <laughs> well, another guy, John. Uh, you know, that's a that's an accurate observation too, because oh, everything yes. I've seen by Irwin Allen. I'm blown away by the first episode of it, yep. or the first handful of episodes, because they just had something right there, and it apparently it was a budget <laughs> and yes. a few other things. <laughs> but um, if you watch the first episode of Lost in Space, you know yep. it was fairly well done. Very special. engaging. When that uh, when that spaceship lands on the planet, that was some of the most realistic photography. And I Jonathan saw Harris was a great evil character, yeah. uh, Doctor Smith, uh, but then he turned into a buffoon later on. And there's another quote here from the Wikipedia site of Irwin Allen I liked was uh, a writer, John Abbott, in his book, Irwin Allen Television Productions, from 64 to 70. He says that here's a man who, when told the cost of a spaceship for a lost-in-space alien, snapped, let him walk, and then (laughs) let the show be canceled rather than take a cut in the budget. So that's the paradoxical nature of of Irwin Allen, but I think it describes Irwin Allen's primary fixation. You know what that is? What's that? Money. Well, if somebody isn't worried about the money, then none of the stuff. But can you know, happen, that's right? also an overriding theme of the three people that we're going to be talking yes. about today: Gene Roddenberry, Rod Serling, and Irwin Allen, um, Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball. Mm-hmm. They have in common the, that they were the means to allow science fiction to become popularized in in culture, and even if it was like Irwin Allen's popularization to children, um, which he was. Or Rod Serling's popularization to adults, and he even describes it as uh, his scripts as mature adult material. And I, I think that he did a great service to science fiction's longevity, while Irwin Allen, it was hard to get over his, um, what can I say, schlocky. Productions. Well, yeah, he had this fetish with monsters too. You know, uh, more to monsters, have, more monsters, and the actors didn't like it. But you know, I thought about that yesterday, and I suddenly realized. That fetish was equally shared by many other people, including the executives in NBC who insisted that the first broadcast of the original Star Trek should be the sixth episode because it had a monster in it. Oh, <laughs> right? the salt demon yes, one. Yes, the was salt that preacher, whatever it was. And so the audi- when the audience got to see the first episode later, many of the crew members were changed as they appeared in the original pilot, and then they went back to the original oh, crew later. Sounds a lot like the way Fox does TV today. And Firefly had the same problem. They started Firefly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so people got to see the first episode of Firefly as a two-part flashback episode in the uh, middle of the series. And then they wonder why they have ratings problems. But, you know, that's the whole history of it. Let's take a break now. We're going to be listening to a few commentaries on just uh, Star Trek and its significance. And then again, um, some insights on one of Irwin Allen's more successful shows, certainly abroad, which was Land of the Giants, and then maybe a few points to wrap all this together and why it all fits into one package. We'll be back after this. 
many people, Star Trek's legacy lies in creator Gene Roddenberry's compelling, hopeful vision of the future and a willingness to openly discuss difficult and sometimes controversial social issues. Cloaked in the guise of science fiction metaphor, Star Trek was able to tackle taboo subjects that, in the 1960s, mainstream television simply couldn't touch. We could tackle issues of all kinds on Star Trek, for instance, that a mainstream show that was a contemporary show could not do. sanctuary then but there can be no sanctuary in the land of the giants setting the then future of 1983 Irwin's fourth television series the land of the giants premiered September 21st 1968 the pilot episode concerned the passengers aboard a futuristic airliner traveling from Los Angeles to London what's happening to us hit some kind of strange time warp, some big green ball, and then we were on this place where everything was 12 times larger. It was some kind of parallel world. It's drawing us in like a magnet. Help! 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 <laughs> oh, thank heaven. Giant! Uh, 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 giant! Operator! Of course, Help! all these physical dangers paled in comparison to those posed by the giants themselves. Not only were they big, they were strange. So strange that even Irwin and the cast weren't entirely sure just who they were supposed to be. In the first few episodes, it was really a different world. There was a different written language. Giants initially moved slowly. Uh, their voices were muffled and bellowed, and you, you couldn't understand them. It appeared to be a very different world, a different planet. It was very difficult to interact with the giants, which it became clear we had to do. If they spoke a different language or they couldn't be understood, that wasn't going to play. So. With very little explanation to anyone, it just changed. I apologize for having done this to you. Please forgive me. We really discovered that, you know, this giant land was, uh, was a, a real fascist dictatorship, and there was a secret police, and, and it, got, it got quite paranoid, actually. I mean, it, it, it was very strange, and we had, you know, the little people were sought after as almost like political criminals and, you know, captured to use uh, against, uh, you know, in this sort of corrupt uh, uh, dictatorial government. So, we've captured two of them. We're trapped. Land of Giants became a phenomenal hit in, in, in many countries that... Uh, had uh, what we would call totalitarian societies, and they said, "Well, this is you know the little people against against the government." You know. Why should we believe you? Please listen to me. 
Under our form of government, bones are tapped. The walls have ears. They could have overheard you when you called me at the hospital. I couldn't take that risk. When they took Lana Johns off the air, there was the biggest protest that had ever been in Romania. Something like two or three hundred thousand people had made a, some, a kind of protest the fact that they were taking it off. The Giants was canceled after just two seasons. The show continues to be popular all over the world. The Giants! Especially in England, where devoted fans publish dozens of books, magazines, and newsletters concerning the show and its cast members. <laughs> Interesting recap there. Uh, I found it fascinating that even though it was unintended, symbolism still took over that show. You know, like they started into it, Land of the Giants, nobody knew what the characters were, and all of a sudden it found itself through the writers. And it became this this whole show about fascism versus the you know little guy versus the big guy, so it's interesting how show creations are affected by all the people who are who are into them. It's inter- I was reading uh, Gene Roddenberry's um, biography written by David Alexander called Star Trek Creator, and he wrote that when uh, Gene Roddenberry was attempting to first promote Star Trek to various studios, most were not interested, even though many acknowledged that the idea was a winner. But it was Desilu Studios that gave Roddenberry his break indirectly. Desilu was owned, uh, and this is from the, um, from, the, from the biography, Desilu was owned by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz and was originally created to produce their television program, I Love Lucy, which burst onto the television scene in 1951. It ended its first season as a number three rated show and then rose and stayed at number one for the rest of its run on CBS except for the October 55-56 season when they were number two just behind the $64,000 question. This is interesting. I Love Lucy was photographed on film. Yes, 35 millimeter yeah. instead of the kinescope. Rather than CBS's preference of being broadcast from the East Coast where 85% of the nation's sets could watch it live. And then it was rebroadcast by kinescope to mm. the rest of the country. Kinescopes were 16 millimeter films of a television screen. It literally pointed it at a TV screen and filmed yeah. it. It was never a satisfactory process and did not produce a high quality picture. By the way, that's one of the reasons why you will not find any lost episodes of I Love Lucy because they were right? all properly recorded. While oh. kinescope was not necessarily, it was a hit and miss type of thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, of course, film union regulations forbade the show being shot at a CBS facility, so additional costs were incurred. Neither the sponsor Philip Morris Cigarettes nor CBS would come up with the additional money needed. So as a consequence of these business roadblocks, Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball did something unusual. They took a pay cut, $1,000 a week, reducing their pay to 4000 per week. Not bad money for the no. 1950s, eh? And 50% of the profits. But to make a long story short, the move, quote, would be very profitable for them, and in perhaps the most ironic of situations, even more profitable when they sold 180 episodes of I Love Lucy back to CBS in 1956 for $4.3 million. (laughs) Lucy and Desi were unique in that they, perhaps more than any other creative individuals like Serling or Roddenberry, were able to earn serious money for their talents. Most other creative people, even high-priced performers, could not. And while Desi Lu was a successful business, the marriage between Lucy and Desi was not. Two years after they divorced on November 9th, 62, it was announced that Desi would no longer, uh, was no longer corporate president and that Lucy was now the president of the company, making her the first woman president of a major telefilm company. 
Lucy hired a fellow named Oscar Koch to run Desilu's programming. He was previously head of CBS programming and knew Gene Roddenberry, whom he hired to create some shows at the network, and together they approached the CBS network to sell the Star Trek creation of Gene Roddenberry. He says, first we went to CBS. The CBS guys questioned us in such detail, and for so long we thought we had, that they had a real interest in the series. They later passed on, passed on doing the series, and we found out that they had questioned us thoroughly because they had a science fiction project called Lost in Space in development, and they wanted to know what the heck we were doing. <laughs> Up to this point, no one would go for science fiction in the true sense of the word. It was too esoteric for them. The only guy who had science fiction on television was Irwin Allen another creative guy in an, or another cre- a creative guy in another sense so they gave up on CBS and they approached NBC run by Mort Werner and Grant Tinker who gave them some quote story money with which they created an episode called The Menagerie and uh, you know poor Gene Roddenberry was always finding himself criticized at NBC for spending so much money on Star Trek more than Irwin Allen was spending on Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea Yes, you know, that goes back to what I was saying before about yeah. how Irwin Allen did a disservice or almost actually killed the idea of, of science fiction on television because here he was putting out his, and I'll say it again, schlocky productions of childish, uh, juvenile uh, science fiction and doing it on a shoestring budget, and nobody else could touch that. And, and the studio executives are only interested in the money and selling times, time slots. And so when nobody could really touch his shoestring budget, mm-hmm. it almost killed the whole notion of getting Star Trek on the air. Uh, almost. And, uh, you know, and again, there was the other issue, too, that unlike those two series whose first episodes were shot in black and white, Star Trek was in color from the beginning, which was a huge major cost consideration in the 1960s. Also, getting William Shatner to star in the show was considered a coup for Star Trek. I found this interesting quote. Shatner was part of a group of actors who had worked solid stage roles, films, and prestigious dramatic television. His first film in 1958 was the role of Alexei in the brothers Karamazov. His television credits included Playhouse 90, again, Arnez, or, or Desi Arnaz, you know, Armstrong Circle Theatre, Goodyear Playhouse, as well as a number of guest-starring appearances on television's better dramatic programs, including The Twilight Zone. Interesting. It was a small world back then, a yes. close-knit community of people who Very all knew much. each other. Yeah. While he did not have widespread public recognition that could be converted into an instant audience, he had the next best thing, recognition by the studio brass. So that's how he got in, you know, because they knew him. In any case, uh, there you go. That's our big over- overview of uh, some of the pioneers in science fiction. And, uh, you know, Rand said, you know, if we see more of romanticism come into our into uh, society's writers and things like that, she says, when reason and philosophy are reborn, literature will be the first phoenix to rise out of today's ashes. Maybe we'll see that happen in our lifetime, eh, Robert? Well, let's hope. But not today, not in today's heat. We've got to go. I hope you join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and come right back here next week. We'll see you then. Live long and prosper. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be I've read this article a dozen times, Martin, but I just can't seem to understand it. I did whatever I could. Those are some books I got together that I thought might help Angela. Oh, background material. That's a good idea. Strange and fantastic tales. Weird adventures. Space rabbit? If I listen to Mom, I'd be writing that Professor Jennings is all wrong. Well, it's not impossible. I've seen some very convincing evidence that there might be people on Mars. You have? 
Where? On the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Mom, how can you mention Twilight Zone in the same breath with a, a brilliant scientist like Professor Newton Jennings? Well, Rod Serling is no dope. He's got a very high rating. 